Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Holy Father, I just declare my dependency upon you. The only reason I have life and I have hope is because of you. You've started a work and you will finish it. And Lord Jesus, you've started this work within me that is captured in this message. It's a good work. It's a good thing. But Lord, it's unfinished. And I have so many questions about it. I have so much desire to see this established in my life, in my family, and in this generation. But Lord, I need you and I need your grace to accomplish it. So I just surrender to you. I surrender to you this message, this time. I surrender to you my being. And I say, use it as your vehicle. Teach me even as I speak. And may you instruct us as the body. Please, Lord Jesus, bring this about in this generation. It's in the precious name of our great King Jesus that we ask it. Amen. Raising William Wallace. Now, for those of you that are already convinced that I have a fetish for William Wallace, this isn't going to help dispel that, is it? I do like William Wallace, okay? But not for the typical reasons that you know, a lot of other men do. Other men have seen a movie called Braveheart, and then they growl and they grunt and they flex their muscles, and that's the reason they like William Wallace. Well, I grew up on a book called The Scottish Chiefs, and it's actually the book that inspired the movie, but the movie can't touch the book. And what was seen in the book is what this is about. I'm not just talking about growling masculinity, you know, build a football linebacker and put some black eye uh, paint beneath his eyes and turn him into a man. That's not what a man is. What I read when I was reading the book, The Scottish Chiefs, which was written in 1810, is I saw for the very first time in my life a man. Now, that isn't to diminish the manhood that I had always seen around me. It's to say I'd never seen anything like this. It was of such a stature of soul that it was shocking to me. It literally left me speechless. As I was reading this, I had such a hunger within me to say, Dear Lord Jesus, I want that. Whatever it takes, I don't care what the cost is, I must have that version of masculinity. I'd never seen it in my life. And yet I saw something on the pages of that book that brought to life a man. Now, you have to realize this book was written in the Romantic era, and so women faint, and uh, if you're a bad guy, you're really bad. And if you're a good guy, you're really good. And so the good guy, William Wallace, has no imperfections. The man is spotless and pure. In fact, he has this blonde flowing locks of hair, which is very awkward because the author is always referring to his blonde flowing locks of hair flowing in the wind. And we're just like, could you leave out the blonde flowing locks? Uh, and so I'd rather have him have a shaved head. It'd make it a little easier for me to relate to the guy. Uh, and, but when I read 
about this man who was basically typifying Jesus Christ, who literally stood up and laid down his life for his nation, I was stirred. In fact, even in the conclusion of the book, as Wallace gives up his life, it says the spirit of Wallace entered into Robert the Bruce, and Robert the Bruce rose up and gained the final victories of deliverance for Scottish freedom. And I see such a parallel in that story of Jesus laying down his life and then the spirit of Jesus entering into the church, the Robert the Bruce, to follow up and finish the work that Jesus had begun. And so there's such a stirring in me. But all that to say, I saw a man. And I saw a man at a level and as a stature that really, truly would make every single one of us, if we could read that book out loud and have all of us as men stand here and have all of our wives critique us in light of William Wallace, it would be humiliating for us. The standard was so off the charts. The guy could do no wrong. Every decision he made was perfect. He had no fear. He would go straight into battle without concern for his own skin. I'd never seen anything like it. I'm trembling reading the book. The guy's running right into battle. Who is this guy? I want what he has. Okay, so I could have called this raising C.T. Studd. That was one of my options on the table. I could have called it raising Hudson Taylor. I could have called it raising William Booth. I could have called it raising Charles Spurgeon. But there's something about William Wallace and the picture that first caught my attention that expands the idea of manhood beyond just a man who can stand in a pulpit and deliver the gospel to a man who is thoroughly impacted by truth in every dimension of his life. In other words, in every category of his life, he's a man. And there are certain men that I esteem in the past that stood strong for the gospel that were actually weak in other areas of their life. I desire to see the return of masculinity in such a way that it is thorough. Jesus was thorough. He was a picture of the completeness of what a man ought to be. And I recognize he was God. But he is the pattern. Because who lives in us? The perfect man. And so let's let him out. Let's let him grow up to full maturity in us. Now, I usually don't get criticism about this, but it would be a valid critique of Eric Ludi, and that is that I'm always giving a man message. Or that I speak to men more than I speak to women. And when I get up to preach, I have a tendency to bring up man examples more than I do women examples. There's a reason for that. I'm a man. You know how ridiculous it would be for me to put myself in the position of childbirth and try to explain it? There's certain things you don't touch. There's certain things you don't try and allude to because you're an expert in what your skin would denote. I am a man. I understand my position as a man. And I believe very firmly that if a man is established clearly in the church of Jesus Christ, we could say in his marriage and in his fatherhood, If men are established strongly, guess what? Women thrive. And so, though the messages that I give might sound like they have just a manly tone and might appeal more to men, I honestly believe, now this is without taking a poll, that women enjoy the man messages just as much as the men. 
because it actually gives context to their life, and it, it's what they cheer on. It's what they long for. When you read the Scottish Chiefs, you're not just saying, oh, come on, it's, you know, it's just a man book. Now, by the way, Scottish Chiefs, for all the girls in here, there's a, a lady in the Scottish Chiefs named Lady Helen, which, by the way, does, does to the women what William Wallace does to the man. It is like an indictment. She's, of course, perfect. Now, she faints a lot, just like William Wallace has the long, flowing blonde, uh, blonde locks of hair. Uh, uh, Helen's always fainting, so she has some weaknesses. But uh, <laughs> raising William Wallace, uh, how would I describe this message? This is to fathers about their boys, primarily. However, you need to realize we have a father in heaven, and we're his children. And so this is going to affect us at multiple levels. Because if you're a, a girl and you don't even, you're a mother with, with girls you know, that you're raising, it's like, how do you appropriate this? Everything about this is transferable to any other area you want. It has to do with vision and expectation of what you're doing. As a father, I have a burden. And I remember when this burden started. Well, let me see if I first subtitle. The father burden, trembling at the call of raising a boy up to be a man. I remember the moment. Leslie was pregnant. She wanted to cheat and find out uh, what the gender of the baby was. And uh, she's a planner, okay? And I'm always thinking, well, for thousands of years, women haven't been able to figure this out. But Leslie's like, well, I didn't live back then. I live now, and you can figure it out. <laughs> and so she, we, we were both convinced that it was a girl. I don't have a clue why, uh, how you can be so wrong in that, uh, that sense. It's like, no, I know it's a girl. She knew it was a girl. And so we went to get a 3D ultrasound. I don't know if any of you have ever seen those. Uh, 3D ultrasound. It looks like your child is made of clay. Uh, and so I remember being in there, and the first thing that was said, I mean, literally, the lady turns on the ultrasound machine and immediately just says, oh, you got yourself a boy. And we were like, no, 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 you might want to look a little further because we have a girl in there. Um, no, it's, it's a boy, see? I was like, okay, well, yeah, I can see. Uh, and she was so convinced, you know, I have to trust that she's a professional at this and she does it all the time, but where's our girl? There must be twins in there. Could, could you look around? Because there has to be a girl there somewhere. Somehow our girl was lost. And we had a boy. And I remember trembling. Now, there's a reason why. You see, you have to recognize, I read the Scottish Chiefs when I was in college. I have a vision for masculinity. But I've been laboring with God for all these years to say, God, I'm a pathetic man. I'm weak when I'm supposed to be strong. I'm strong when I'm supposed to be soft. I need to be fixed. And I'm halfway through this journey, and now I have a little boy? I'm not prepared to raise a man. That's my thought. I'm not ready to impart something I don't fully yet have. And I was trembling at this because I have such a high vision. Wait till you hear this message. I have such a high vision of masculinity. Anyone that hangs around me knows that, but I'm not going to compliment my own masculinity. I'm a work in process. I esteem the grandeur of masculinity, and I walk it to the degree that I can. 
But I still see my shortcomings. I still sense my cowardice. I still recognize the fact that I am not complete and well-rounded, and yet I desire to raise a boy that is. How do you do that? The deficiency. Can you possibly train a boy to go beyond where you are at as a man? You see the problem of our generation of fathers? We've been dealt oftentimes a mediocre hand. Oh, maybe I should say it this way, a decent hand. Some of us actually came from good homes. However, the standard of masculinity is just sort of average. It's just sort of there. It's not bad. It's not necessarily grand. It's not going to stand out, but it's not terrible. Yeah, I mean, you show respect for a woman, sure. Yeah, and you, you, you try not to have the wandering eye, sure. You're giving your best attempt at it. That's just decent manhood. I'm not talking about that. I'm not interested in more decent men. The world is populated with all sorts of decent men that are going to hell. We don't need more of those. We need men that are filled with Jesus Christ and who exude his nature on this earth. And I, for one, as a father, though I'm not yet quite sure how to fully impart this to my son and committing myself to do it. When, I, when Hudson was born, and I was scared. I, wanted, I mean, I love having a boy. I love having a firstborn boy. I love my son. I, from the very beginning, even before he was born, I started writing a book to him. It's called The Making of a Warrior Poet. And it's my processing of everything I'm talking about here. And all I can say is, I don't have the final chapter. I don't know exactly how to answer my own questions in this message. That's why I'm saying this is a half-baked message. However, sometimes God pushes out a half-baked message because it needs to start baking in your life. And God's just shooting it out there to say, are you guys in on this? Do you understand the need for this in our generation? The impossible task. It's hard enough to just be a Christian man, let alone raise a world-changing Christian boy. You know how hard it is to be a Christian man? If any of you remember my Mother's Day message, it was called The Impossible Life. And I went through the six aspects or or, uh, departments of a man's life. Arenas, I think is what I called it. Of a man's life. And six. And the Bible commissions a man to be excellent in every single one of those. And so this is just a quick review. The six arenas of the Christian man's life. Number one. He has to be great with his God. A heaven-come-to-earth devotional life with his God. And so just as men in here, and all the women, of course, can take this too. This is just for us as men. Do we have a world-class devotional life with our king? He gets our best time, our best hours. We're available to him at any time. Anytime our God needs us, he knows he has his man in us. Number two, with our wife. A fairy tale, intimate relationship with our wives. Three, our kids, world-class investment into the lives of our children. By the way, what this message is about is only has to do with one of the six dimensions on this list. So when I say it's hard enough just to be a man of God and be excellent in all six arenas, let alone 
to take one of those six arenas and amp up the standard in it of what it's supposed to be. This could be crushing weight upon our shoulders. I can't do that. And so we throw up our hands and we give up before we even start. Number four, friends and family. Kind, consistent, honorable, and thoughtful remembrance and service unto our friends and extended family members. Five, our business. Uncompromising excellence and diligence in our business dealings and financial investments. And six, our ministry. Hudson Taylor-like givenness to the preaching of the gospel and the practical rescue of the lost, the dying, the orphans, and the widows around us. If you try and rise up to be a well-orbed, fully-orbed man... Six arenas. Any of you men in here that have ever tried to be excellent in all six of those arenas simultaneously can all attest to one singular thing. It is impossible. Cannot do it. You cannot be excellent in six arenas simultaneous. So here's my thought. I've pondered this. In the natural sense, Eric's natural makeup what natural willpower I have, natural ability I have, the time I have in a day, just what I have. God, you know, gifted in and through my natural birth. I have the capacity to be excellent in 2.5 of six arenas at one time. 2.5. I can do that. I can be excellent in my relationship with my God, my ministry, and then maybe half with my wife or kids, and maybe split it in a quarter. Give a quarter to my wife, a quarter to my kids. But I could be really good with God and in my ministry. That's how most Christian uh, pastors have functioned for years, which is why their marriages have failed and their kids go down the toilet. Because you can't practically be excellent in all six. You have to pick your, your, your arena. So what do most men pick? They pick business. They pick the arena that will be most respected by the world around them because they want to be respected. They want to be seen as something in this world. And so that's obviously going to be one of the ones they pick. What are they going to pick beyond that? Usually we split up and we have a little, you know, three quarters of one here, a quarter of one here, a half of one here. We spread the wealth of our 2.5, but we cannot be excellent in these things. So pick your 2.5 arenas, for you must face the fact that it is impossible to do it all. By the way, this is not a defeated message. I'm going to raise this bar so high today, it's going to seem ridiculous. And I'm starting with the statement that says, you can't do it. What's the good of raising a bar then? God raises the bar. God's the one that calls us to the impossible life. I'm not the one that does it. And he's not mocking us. He's not holding us in contempt saying, hey, I'm calling you to do this. And then he's chuckling to himself going, I know they can't do it, so now I can punish them for not doing what they couldn't do anyways. We can't do what God has called us to do, which is what causes us to come to the living God and say, God, I can't do that. And he says, you're right. And then we say, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to fulfill my commission? Because I can't do it, yet you've commanded me to do it. He says, now that's a good question. It's called the gospel. You see, Jesus has made provision to make up for our lack. He has made provision for ability to enter into our life. It's known as grace. To equip us to accomplish what otherwise would be deemed impossible in the natural sense. We are not called to live as natural men. We're called to live as supernatural men. You ever heard of superheroes? Mm-hmm. 
It's Christians. Christians are superheroes. We don't wear capes and we don't fly and we don't see through buildings and things like that. But we live impossible lives. The two facts to face. So here's a couple facts that we need to meditate upon. Facts of the natural law. Natural law is going to be just the laws that are native to this earth. They're not supernaturally uh, associated. They're just natural. In other words, if I jump, I fall down. I'll come down because of the law of gravity. That's natural law. Okay? And natural law would state that a man has the capacity to be excellent in 2.5 areas of six uh, arenas in his life at any given time. That's natural law. So the impossible is simply impossible. That's the principle of natural law. Otherwise, the word impossible doesn't make sense. You wouldn't call something impossible if it was possible. If it's impossible, that means it's impossible. You cannot do it. So the rule is the impossible is simply impossible. Just accept it. Hey, world, just accept that the impossible is impossible. Why wouldn't we? Why would we fight it? I can't do that. Why should I try? So when God raises the bar and says, these six arenas, you must do them, and then we try in our own strength to pull it off, what do we find? It's impossible. And so what do we do? We throw up our hands and say, well, I can't do it. So obviously God doesn't intend me to do it. That's the wrong conclusion. Because, well, let me read a couple scriptures to go with that. With men, this is impossible. With men, it is impossible. Okay, now that's a great statement for most of us. We're like, see, it says it in the Bible. That's Jesus talking. He's saying, with men, this is impossible, and I'm a man. So it's impossible. Hey, just can someone, can my wife stop nagging me? It says right there in Mark 10, 27 that it's impossible. Yeah, well, let's get the second half to that verse. There's a little dot, dot, dot in both of those verses. You want to see the other half? Well, I'm not going to give it yet, but I'll give you the subtitle to the second theme here. The facts of heavenly law. So most of us function under natural law, and we justify our defeat and our mediocrity under the fact that, hey, I can't do that. You're right, you can't do that. But I know someone who can. Someone who has purchased the means by which you could live a life that otherwise could never be lived. So with God, nothing is impossible. With God, nothing shall be impossible. What does nothing mean? Nothing. That doesn't leave a lot out. With God, all things are possible. What does all things translate uh, into? All things. Raising William Wallace. What we're about to do is describe the impossible. And remember, with God, all things are possible. I recognize what I'm going to describe for our natural ability as fathers this is absolutely ridiculous. We can't do it. And I'll be the first one to acknowledge that I can't pull this off. However, it's my job to believe. And if my God commissions me to do something as a father, then I must trust that my God will make supply and provision to me to enable me to accomplish what otherwise I could never accomplish. So that's my premise with this message. I believe this is possible with God. Raising William Wallace. Building an everyday boy into a man who alters the course of history. I don't have a special DNA that when I have a little boy, he pops out and he's a superhero. Nothing special comes out of my DNA. My children have to be transformed by the grace of God. And you know that I cannot convince my child to yield his life up to Jesus Christ. It's a very frustrating feeling as a parent. 
I can't take what's in me and force it into my son. I can't make him awaken to the depths of the grace of God. I can't awaken him to the glory of God. Now, I can be a servant in the process of God's work, but I am ill-equipped to do a supernatural awakening and charge to his soul. And as a parent, that puts me at a disability. Because what I desire to see formed in my son, I personally can't actually accomplish all of it. There's certain things I can do, and I'm not going to diminish that. But there's certain things I can't do. And those certain things that I can't do just happen to be the most important things. See, all these other things that I'm going to go through stem from the fact that he must be supercharged by the grace of God. One of my passion points as a parent is the fact that if I care so desperately about my son's soul, that is a work of grace in me. Because a lot of other men, they care about their sons being, you know, athletes or getting straight A's. You know what I care about? I care about my son knowing Jesus Christ. That's the work of grace in me, to put a priority in my soul that matters. And so if I have that burden, I know that burden came from God. And if that burden came from God, by golly, it's going to be accomplished to my son. So I walk with a firm confidence that my son will fully awaken to the realities of the kingdom. But I'm still at a disadvantage in this process. I need my God to do the work. So let's go through the the principles of what I mean by raising a William Wallace. It's a boy of unimpeachable, unimpeachable honor. It's an honor that cannot be questioned. This boy lives with such a character and such an integrity that the world outside knows a spotlessness to his character, knows that upon his tongue there is no guile. Not just a well-mannered boy, but a truly noble boy who behaves with regal honor and heavenly decorum. Okay, now, we can read something up on the screen, but I want us to pause and bring this down into real life. Many of us would not even believe that this is possible, especially in our modern age. If you watch a Jimmy Stewart movie and you watch some of the kids and how they behave, it's like, yeah, back then, maybe, you know, when kids were more respectful. What causes a child to be respectful? Well, I'm guessing the parents have something to do with it. Do we blame everything on the society? Are our kids sunk just because they were born today? Or is there a possibility that the church of Jesus Christ can set things straight that have gotten crooked? I'm convinced that William Wallace's can once again emerge in this generation. Number two, the boy of uncompromising restraint. He is not vulnerable to the the same tactics that the enemy is using on everyone else. He is trained and groomed to be a boy of self-control, a boy who monitors where his eyes look, a boy who monitors his every thought. How does a boy learn this? Were we taught, think about it as men, were we taught how to govern our inner life? Were we taught how to monitor our thoughts? Were we taught self-control? Or were we just taught not to touch the stove? when it's hot. We were taught some things, I'm sure, but we were not groomed for what we were going to head into. It's like going into the battle and not having a weapon and wondering why our children are being killed and shot with, through with bullets. They don't know how to fight the battle. 
Well, I, for one, know the significance. I've been on the front lines of sexual deviancy and dealing with its impact upon the church for 18 years. And I have little boys. Do you think it matters to me? You better believe it, it does. And I must know how to impart to young boys before they get to that hour. Not when they're at Omaha Beach, hand them a gun and say, here, this is how you use it. Meanwhile, they're shot through. Somehow, some way, we must once again know how to lay a foundation in little boys' lives so that they can be strong. Not just a boy who can treat a girl with respect, but one who can preserve her with his every thought. Number three, the boy ever prepared for disaster. Most young men that go through, whether it's Cub Scouts, Boy, Boy Scouts, or you know, they have the manly dads who go out hunting, they learn survival skills. That's not exactly what I'm interested in training my son. I'm not against it. I'd like that to come with the package. However, do you see something about just the notion of survival skills that seems a little awkward? You know what I'm interested in training my son to do? I want him to know rescue skills. I want him to know how to expend himself to save someone else. I want, I'm not looking for him to die. If he can save someone else and save his own life at the same time, I'm all for it. But I want to train my boys to be rescuers, not just survivors. There's a difference there. The boy ever ready and ever prepared for disaster. You know that a true man does not cower in the face of difficulty, does not cower in the face of challenge. When there's crisis, you know, that's when the true men rise up. Everyone else is screaming. The true men rise up and say, this is the hour. This is what you're built for. You know a man that's prepared for war, you know the one thing he itches for is battle. That's what he wants. He wants to prove himself in battle. And a boy that's prepared for disaster, what's he waiting for? Disaster. Because he has all the skills for it. He's actually been trained for it. When you learn how to hunt and fish, what do you want to do? Go out and hunt and fish. You want to prove that you can do it. You're gaining a skill. What do you want to do with that skill? You want to apply that skill. Well, the skill is rescue. We want to train our boys to be rescuers. And so what are they going to be excited about? Looking for opportunities to rescue. I didn't grow up with this. This is literally a void in my life, and I need to see it fully cultivated. And you'll notice at Ellerslie, this is what I teach all the time, because it is so critically important to my own soul. Not just a Boy Scout, but one ready to endure the most extreme privations, difficulties, and sufferings with adroitness and enthusiasm. Number four, the boy of unflinching gospel force. Do you imagine a boy? These are boys I'm talking about. I'm not just talking about men. I'm talking about raising boys to be this way. The boy of unflinching gospel force. How about little boys that actually know the gospel? Not just the little kid version. The one that, you know, with little bells and whistles on it that says, no, you know, you just believe in Jesus and then you can go to heaven. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the full, well-orbed gospel that takes a man to his death and brings to life a newness in Jesus Christ, seats him at the right hand of the Father and plants the Spirit of God at the very center of his being and the life he now lives in this body. He lives by faith in the Son of God. That gospel, the one that is empowered to live, and the boy who literally knows, I have 
power to live today. Not in my own ability, but in God living through me. And there is a dying world that must hear it. Could you imagine a little boy catching that vision? And he's also built to rescue at the same time. We're talking about a little miniature William Wallace here. That's what I want to see. And if you asked me, so Eric, how are we going to do this? I'm not exactly sure. That's the problem with this message coming out so soon. I don't have that all figured out. I don't know if it's my responsibility to figure out. All I have is the ache and the drive and the need. Because I have boys. You have boys. Boys all over this world that are not being trained. Not just a boy that prays a salvation prayer, but one who brings the full gospel to the nations and refuses to stop preaching even when threatened with death. I don't know, I tell you what, some of the most powerful stories I've ever heard are when little children in nations under persecution have stood up for the gospel. Esther on Kim when she did not bend her knee in Korea. That little, I think it was a little girl, uh, can't remember if it was Romania, can't remember if it was China, when all the children were supposed to come up and spit upon the Bible. And the Bible was covered with spittle. And this little girl comes up, cleans it off, and kisses it. That's the child I want to raise up. That's what I want to see in my children. I don't know exactly how to impart that. But that's the vision. One that knows full well that when they do what they must do, they may die. But they gladly do it for the glory of their king whom they love. They don't do it out of a sense of duty or because mom and dad taught them to. They do it because they personally know Jesus Christ. And they personally must remove that spittle. And they will gladly give their life up to do it. Whatever that is, I want to impart it. Number five, the boy fit for battle. Not just a boy that looks sculpted in the mirror, but one built strong and fit to tackle the most formidable obstacles of physical challenge. When I was growing up, I was an athlete. I exercised, when I was in college, I literally exercised. I had two major blocks of a couple hours in the morning and in the afternoon where I trained for about two hours. And so my life was given to physical fitness. And why? Why was it given to physical fitness? Because it made me look more like a man. I wanted to have the, the cut of a man. I wanted to appear strong. For who? It's hard to explain. Because as a man, you want girls to be attracted to it, but girls don't always appreciate it. Actually, I've always said that most guys, they, they lift weights to impress other guys. Because girls usually don't know what a bench press is. You know, it's like, what's that? And so if they brag about their bench press weight, the girls have no concept of it. It's like I remember when I was shooting baskets and Leslie was in the stands and uh, she was talking with someone and I was out at the, it was like the three-point line and swish. I looked over to see if she noticed. And she's talking away. It's like, oh, hey, Leslie. You know, tried to get her attention and then shot. And it's like a swish and she doesn't even notice. She's like, yeah, did you need something? I'm like, I need you to appreciate the fact that I'm hitting three-pointers you know, as if it's easy for me. She didn't appreciate it at all. But there's this need that men have to be respected. And we will use physical fitness as our justification for why we're trying to woo the impressions of those around us. You know what? I want a little boy 
who understands the value of physical strength, but not for the reasons this world has conned everyone into, but because he's being built for the most difficult challenges known to men. And he is going to be in the darkest places on earth, and he must be ready for it. That is why a little boy is trained. He is built for the most difficult of circumstances. That is the vision that I want to see once again ratcheted home in little boys. They live for the glory of their king and not for the good opinion of anyone else around them. Not just a boy that looks sculpted in the mirror, but one built strong and fit to tackle the most formidable obstacles of physical challenge. And number six... The boy skilled for every task. The word every is a big one, I know. I am a boy, or man, that is skilled for a few tasks. I have massive weak points in the skill department, okay? Now, don't rub it in, if, for those of you that know. I don't know mechanics worth a hoot. And if my car has a problem, I just sort of stare at it for a while, unless it goes, what do you think's wrong? And I go, uh, well... Uh, I, uh, I'm going to call Dan. <laughs> I don't know anything about this thing. I mean, I know what I could guess at things. Well, maybe the oil's low. Maybe we're out of gas. I mean, I know enough to at least do that. I don't know how to fix things. And so as a result, one of the number one things I want Hudson to be able to do is take care of his wife by being knowledgeable about the most basic things of a house. I was not trained that way. You know what my dad's philosophy was growing up? Eric, the reason I work so hard at what I do is so I can pay someone else to do it. You know what? I can respect that. However, it didn't groom me to take care of my family in these ways practically. I don't want to impart that, but as a result, because that's my upbringing, what am I set up to impart to my child? Just pay someone else to do it. This is uncomfortable for him because I have to learn how to do things as well to even be able to impart And so when in our arenas of weakness, these become arenas that check us, that test us, and say, what do you want for your son? Are you willing to get uncomfortable to be able to bring it? I don't just mean carpentry skills. I don't just mean that, because that's the classic thing that we conclude. I mean a man who could go into any situation and have knowledge and ability and adroitness to address and problem solve in every circumstance. He's useful. He's able, sort of like the MacGyver of little boys. In other words, where a guy can take a little, you know, uh, his, his pocket knife and turn, you know, a tree into some type of way to uh, send a signal out to Pakistan. In other words, he just knows how to do these things. Not just a boy that knows how to use his iPhone, but one that is built to problem solve and practically help in any and every situation. See, what happens to Eric Ludi is I want to help in every, any and every situation. I do. I genuinely love to serve. One of my favorite things to do is give directions to people. Like, I love to see when someone's, like, looking around, and I'm like, can I help you? I love to help people. I really do. It gives me a certain rush. And they're like, yeah, I'm looking for the uh, first bank. And I'm like, all right. Well, see, what you want to do, oh, I love it. You know, I'm useful. I'm directing them. And that's the way I am with the gospel, too. It's like, yeah, I just need to find Jesus. Oh, okay. oh great. All right, let me show you. <laughs> that's what I want in my boy. But I need him to be more well-rounded than me. Because there are certain situations where someone's like, yeah, I have, my car's not, I've, I've stopped. 
on the side of the road when someone's like car is broken down. I'm, I like walk up to it. And I know I'm setting myself up for a bad moment, but I'm like, I bounce on my toes a little. I'm like, so you need some help here? Yeah. Do you know anything about cars? No. <laughs> I have a cell phone. Uh, I can give you a lift somewhere. Well, uh, you know, I already called someone and I have someone coming. So I guess you're not really that helpful. Great, great. All right, you have a nice day. No, oh, I don't like that. I want to train my boys to be useful, to be able to meet the needs and wherever they go, they are an instrument of change, an instrument of rescue. And number seven, this is the final one. The boy who knows what it means to be a man. Not just a boy that understands the distinctions of maleness, but one who fully understands and embraces the extraordinarily difficult calling of heavenly manhood. Does a man, does a little boy know that in any situation, he's the one that must take the hit? That if there's someone that needs to be struck down, He's the one that will stand in front. If a bullet's flying, he's the one that will step in front and take it. That's what a man does. If there's only enough food for everyone at the table but you, it's the boy that says, no, you take it. If there's one cinnamon roll left in the middle of the the table on the platter, the little boy says, no, you take it. You know how hard that is for a boy? It's the exact opposite of the way we work. We have big stomachs. We're growing boys. And yet a boy needs to learn how to be a man. And a man will defer. A man will give up his strength to supply that strength to others. It's the Jesus principle. If anyone deserved the attention, the applause, the honor, the appreciation, it would have been Jesus. Instead, he took all the ridicule, all the shame, all the mockery, so that we could be rescued. He gave up his meal and gave it to us. He gave up his life and gave it to us. It's Jesus. We train our little boys to be like that. So remember, with men this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. The levels of training. I'm going to, you see a little list here, and what I would describe this as is the breakdown that most of us have for our parenting. If we were to measure our parenting, it's sort of on a scale. And we have bad parenting, poor parenting, mediocre parenting, Decent parenting, good parenting, and great parenting. And I would say most of us, if we live off of this little standard, you know, we're not aiming for mediocre. We're aiming for decent and good. You know, we can't really expect to be great, but we'd be happy with decent or good. First of all, what I want us to do is scrap this list. I want to make a different list. We could call this expanding our vision. Good, great, world-impacting, altering the course of history. You notice how mediocre isn't even on the list? It's not even a possibility. We do not reason for mediocrity. The worst case scenario is good. And that is at the lowest end. That's like the failing grade. I'm not just going to be a good parent. See, most of us have reasoned for far too long saying, hey, I'm a good parent. That's not enough. Good is the enemy of altering the course of history parenting. It's the enemy. It's the arch nemesis. It's what cancels it out. We don't seek good. Now look at this. Good, great, world impacting. That's pretty high, by the way. Do you notice that suddenly great is near the bottom? Great is like a C or a D. 
We don't seek great. You know that we train our children to put a dent in this world. But I want us to think beyond that. Alter the course of history, a.k.a. changing the world. You know that this world is not very healthy right now, and it needs to be reformed? What are we building? We're building many reformers. We're building men and women who literally will go into this world, and the world will be altered by the time they breathe their last. That's what we build. We do not build average men and women. We build supernatural carrying devices of the grace of God. The Endless Frontier, parenting from a whole new paradigm. For those of you that have gone through Ellerslie, you know the, the phrase endless frontier. But it comes from my singing days when Leslie and I used to take uh, singing lessons. My vocal coach, his name was Dr. Scott, uh, at the time was considered one of the top five vocal coaches in the world. He is like a Yoda when it comes to uh, singing. And so, and he is sort of a funny looking guy too, you know, like Yoda. Uh, and so he has, you know, this belly that goes out and he has socks that hang off the end of his toes. He's the most lovable character you'll ever meet, but he is a little eccentric. But he's a master vocal coach. And I remember when I first came into him, he sort of set it straight of what was required of me. He says, Eric, you want to be a great singer, huh? Yeah, I, I do. Well, I need you to practice six hours a day. Uh, six hours? Who in their right mind would give six hours to singing? This is his answer. Uh, those who want to be the best? Oh, oh, six hours, six hours. Six hours. I mean, could you imagine singing for six hours? And so I remember just starting out, and I averaged about 2.5 hours a day for about a year. And by the way, that is a lot of practice. Okay, two and a half hours, but he was disappointed every week that I'd come in. He asked me for my hour count, and I could never please the guy. You know, he asked for six hours in the beginning, which is, by the way, Olympic-level training, and I was only spitting out two and a half. And so he was, I mean, I was the classic disappointment for him. After an entire year, he had not given me one compliment. And I'm a guy that sort of works and feeds off of a little encouragement, However, I think it was a tactic on his part because he recognized that I kept working harder and harder and harder to try and get that compliment from him so he just wouldn't give it to me. So a year has passed. I thought it was going to take me two to three months to be a professional singer. That was my thought. You know, I'm training with one of the world's best. Why would it take any long? I mean, you just can either sing or you can't. How hard is this? A year has passed. I have not even gotten a, a word of encouragement or praise to say that I've gotten anywhere. And so I finally got up the guts to ask the question. Uh, so Scott, how, how good am I? And he chuckled when he heard me ask the question. He's like, oh, uh, you finally asked the question. I'm like, yeah. Uh, and he said, Eric, you played soccer, didn't you? Well, yeah. How old were you when you started playing soccer? I was like seven. It was okay. Imagine, you're seven years old. You've been playing soccer for one month. How good were you? I go, I stunk. He goes, Exactly. <laughs> that was his feedback to me. And he says, but before you get too discouraged, I'm like, oh, yeah, far too late. Before you get too discouraged, Eric, I want you to realize singing is an endless frontier. You have taken one step into an endless frontier, and you're asking me how far you've gone. Well, you've gone one step into an endless frontier. But, Eric, you need to realize you're one step further than 99.9% of the rest of the human race. But never pitch your tent.
You know that that little statement and picture, that metaphorical picture, altered my life? Because all my life, I've been looking for the place to pitch my tent. I've been looking for that place of good enough. Look, at I, I made it this far. Everyone else is back here. What do we do in our parenting? We're looking for a place to pitch our tent. We're looking for a validation that we have been good parents. And so we're looking for the nice plot of land. If I could just get up to there. And I'm telling you today, pull up the tent stakes. Don't measure yourself based on the generation in which we live. Yank up those tent stakes. Onward, forward, march. There is something more that we must be imparting. Some of you have elder children. And you could be saying, well, little, uh, you know, little too late for this message. I don't believe it's ever too late for a message like this. Not only, I mean, there's multiple layers to this. We have grandchildren, number one, but even children. I don't believe we should ever give up on our children, even when they're 50, 60, 70. I don't know how old you can be and still have children, you know, in 80. I'm sure it's possible. Uh, in other words, our job is to constantly give the very best to wrestle in prayer, to see something forged and formed within our kids. The Endless Frontier, a parenting from a whole new paradigm. Change the world parenting. I'm not interested in good parenting. I'm not interested in great parenting. I'm not going to say I'm not interested in world-impacting parenting. That's, that's a nice-sounding uh, thing. I'm interested in whatever the highest degree of parenting is, I'm after it. You ever been around uh, a student in school that would cry and break down and, uh, you know, have a fit if they ever got an A- minus on something? That's the attitude I want to have towards parenting. I refuse to settle for anything less than God's highest and best in this arena. I cannot think of any other arena in my life probably as important as this one. I have great responsibility, and the, the responsibility I have at Ellerslie to impart and to disciple is very significant. But if I am great at Ellerslie and I fail in my home, the measurement of my life is I failed. I am measured by my home. The reason I am fit to lead the church of Jesus Christ is because I first lead my home. I must do it right. And if I lead my home well, I will in natural course lead here well. And that's why God says, first prove a man at home. If he can do it there, then he can lead the church of Jesus Christ. And he will lead it well if he can lead that environment well. Change the world parenting. The modern mentality, poor parenting versus good parenting. And so we have, this is just the classic concept of, you know, we have good parents and bad parents. Well, I, I don't accept that as the delineation. Well, here's a serious Christian mentality. This is where most of us have lived. Good parenting versus great parenting. And most of us have struggled. We're just wanting to be good enough, but we really esteem the great parenting. Don't get us wrong. We esteem it, but it's hard, okay? And we're all sort of in this battle together, and we, we really want to succeed, but this is hard stuff. I can testify to that, too. Parenting is hard work. And to do it right, you know what? We don't have templates for this. We haven't been groomed. It's not like we all grew up and were trained how to be great parents. We are learning. We're pioneering territory as we go. Here's what I want us to begin to think like. The raising William Wallace mentality. Great parenting versus change the world parenting. In other words, we're actually saying 
look, we could be great parents, but we don't want to just settle there. We want to aim for something higher. Now, I, I realize some of us are poor or mediocre parents, and we're listening to this going, I, I can't even come close to that mentality. Sure you can. It starts with the vision. Without the vision, the people perish. We have to have the vision of where God's going. If you don't know that God wants to go in this direction, you'll never set out your course there. And so as parents, we may not know how to get here, but we know we're supposed to be there. And so we say, God, I need you to somehow take this life, take my parenting, and lead me there. Do you think God's going to balk at answering that prayer? Do you think God's like, oh, I don't know about that? You pray big prayers. Learn to pray Elijah, I'm sorry, Elisha-sized prayers. When he comes up to the prophet Elijah and asks for a double portion of the Spirit of God that was imparted to Elijah. A double portion of what Elijah had? That's the type of prayers we need to be asking for. I want a double portion of what William and Catherine Booth had in raising their children. God, I need something more. I need something more. Typically, what you have is you have strong leaders in the church, and the next generation, their children are not as strong. There's a deterioration. And you can study that throughout history. I, I really do not accept it. I'm convinced that the Jesus model of parenting is that the generation that follows does greater things. That's Jesus. Look at the apostles. They did greater work. That's the Jesus model of parenting. And so I don't know why that's the constant theme and mantra throughout Christian history is a breakdown generationally. I want to see an upgrade in the next generation. Let's go higher, not lower. How do we fight for this? First, we must have a vision. Introducing Grace, the secret to raising William Wallace. Grace. Now, if you've been around here, you've heard me teach on grace quite a few times. A very simple definition of grace is the labor of God on man's behalf. A lot of us in the modern uh, church have had a definition of grace of being just the hug of God upon our sinful state. That's not what grace is. Grace is God. Yes, he does come to us in our sinful state, but he loves us too much to leave us in that state. And so he picks us out of the mud, cleanses us off, sticks our feet upon a rock and makes us immovable, and then sticks his very spirit and power in us and gives us a growl for his glory. That's grace. Grace makes fearlessly intrepid, unstoppable men. So, grace, the labor of God on man's behalf. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, says Paul. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. What labored in Paul? Grace. Grace is the labor. It's the work of God to carry out the impossible errands of God. You cannot do what we're talking about today. You cannot raise your children to be something like what we're describing today without this. This is not something that a parent just wakes up one day and says, you know what, I'm going to raise a William Wallace. You don't do that. What you do is you come to God and you say, God, I need help because I can't do this life. I can't pull off this impossible commission that you've given me. Take me, fill me with your life, and use this life to change the world around me. All we are is a vessel. We're a vessel of his labor, of his work. That's our secret, is to abide in him and to be a flow-through channel. And out of our life will become world-class devotional life with Jesus Christ, a world-class marriage with our spouse, a world-class parenting, 
and life with our kids where we're able to impart the riches of the kingdom of heaven. We learn how to be a flow-through channel for his grace. For by grace are you saved. What is going to accomplish that saving work in us? It's grace. Grace is not just evidenced at the cross, but has been made eternally available through the cross. This grace is ever-present, always available, always accessible, amazingly sufficient for every good work, potently efficacious, and divinely effective in procuring its ends. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, I'm here to tell you that I'm in a time of need. If you've been a parent for long, you probably can relate to that that feeling of awakening, either in the night, in the early morning hours, and just laying there in bed and pondering the fact that your children need more time with you. They need to be better trained. You haven't been doing this. They were influenced by this kid yesterday, and what that kid said to them now is in their head and in their thinking, and you need to somehow address that. You want your kid to have friends, but you're not exactly sure how that is supposed to work. You want your child to be groomed and educated well, but you don't know if you trust this teacher. You want the best. You need help. You need grace for help in time of need. We represent a generation where this is very, very, very difficult. What I'm commissioning you towards, and I'm commissioning myself, I feel the commission, is to rise up and not accept defeat. To not throw our hands up in the air and say, look, I got dealt a difficult time period to have children in. I'm living in an American culture which is saturated with media. Doesn't matter where we go, they are hearing things, seeing things. It doesn't matter how long I keep them in the house, they eventually get out. And if I don't send them to school and I keep them at home, then I have to somehow manage an entire curriculum in addition to everything else. And if I want to keep them healthy, now I have to go shop at, you know, Sprouts and pay an extra, you know, 50% a month to keep their body healthy, too. Why is everything just falling apart in this generation? All the weight crashes on my shoulders as a parent. You feel the level of impossibility that is associated with this. I have some thoughts in regards to this. Don't think I'm, you know, blank in my mind as far as what needs to be done. I just don't have the full answer. I'm moving in this direction because I have a seven and a half year old boy and my heart aches. I mean, literally aches because he's growing up so fast. I just want to do it right. And there are moments, and I'm sure every parent feels it, where you think that I don't know that I'm doing anything right because you'd think I'd see some different fruit right now. I mean, I give all out to Jesus, but what if my children don't really have a hunger to pray? What if they don't want to read the Bible? What if when daddy wants to sing a worship song, they want to sing Jingle Bells? That's my experience. <laughs> no, no, you want to have a heart to worship. Don't you see his beauty? No, they don't. How, how do I show them his beauty? How do I somehow impart to them what's inside daddy and mommy? How does it get out of me? How does it get into them? Ah! I need grace. I need help in time of need. I have it. I have what I need. This is a secret. It's not going to come from Eric. It's not me drumming up more resolve. It's not me drumming up more discipline. It's me 
yielding and saying, God, I know where to go. Remember Jacob? He went to Esau's heel. He conned Esau and sold, uh, got Esau to sell his birthright. And then he conned Isaac into giving him the blessing. And guess what? Jacob still didn't have what he wanted. He was still needful of something because he was going to the wrong source. That's how most of us have lived our life. That's how most of us parent our children. We're scampering around, grabbing heels, conning uh, you know, for birthrights and getting blessings that aren't changing our life. And finally, Jacob reaches the dark night of the soul and he grabs a hold of the man of God. And he says, you have what I need and I will not let go of you until you bless me. That's where I'm at. I'm in the dark night of my parenting soul. And I'm grabbing a hold of God saying, you have it. I don't. I need what you have and only you have. And I will not let go until I get it. So my commission to you is to grab a hold with me. It's hard to hang on. I would love the encouragement of knowing the entire body of Christ standing together. And we're all wrestling with God. I haven't used that word before. It just sounded fun to come out. We're all wrestling with God, saying, God, this generation must go a different direction. We refuse to accept that the American church is going to go down the toilet on our watch. This must change now. The 11 strengths of Israel. Do we know how far we have fallen? I'm going to read you a quick story out of Isaiah 3. For behold... The Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the supply and the support, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water. Israel and Judah are in judgment. They have turned away from God. And so God comes and he says, I'm taking away the whole supply of bread and water from the land. Then he goes on to describe that. The mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet, and the prudent and the elder, the captain of 50 and the honorable man, the counselor and the skillful artisan, and the eloquent orator. What was removed from the land of Israel? The manhood. The strength. Everything that would protect it, everything that would educate it, everything that could lead it. When God brings judgment on a nation, what he does is he removes the bread and the water, the whole supply of it. But the bread and the water, by the way, just to prepare you, this is the Old Testament, it's in a foreshadow, it's Jesus Who's the bread and who's the water of Israel? Who's the whole supply? It's Jesus. And when Jesus is removed from any society, what happens? Well, as we continue on in the story, which won't be instantaneously, but I'm going to break down this and you'll see what happens. The supply and the support, the whole supply of bread and water. I, Jesus, am the bread of life. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And we know in the New Testament that the living water is the Holy Spirit. But where does the Holy Spirit come from? Jesus. And so what we have is we have the picture of the whole supply. It's God that is needful to feed, to sustain, and to grow up the people of Israel. Okay, now I want you to recognize this is a picture of individual souls, this is a picture of marriages and families, this is a picture of the church, this is a picture of nations. Same principle. When we rebel against God, we lose the bread and the water in Israel, and the strength of the man is removed. And when the strength of the man is removed from any nation, from any church, from any family, from any individual life, it goes south and it goes south quickly. The loss of the 11 strengths, the entire supply and support of of bread and water in Israel. Let's look at these. The mighty man, 
the man of war, the judge, the prophet, the prudent, the elder, the captain of 50, the honorable man, the counselor, the skillful artisan, and the eloquent orator. If I broke these down, which I have an entire message called Little Ellerslie, and it goes through this in great detail of how I basically show what has been brought, uh, taken out of academics today. When we lose Jesus out of the center of our academic learning, you literally empty out the strength of living. Now you have data, you have facts, you have information, but you don't have power. You don't have life. You need bread and water to live. This is the sustaining grace. You can't just live on earth without bread and water. You will shrivel up and die. Jesus is the supply and support of Israel. He is grace. Our bread and water is grace. These 11 strengths are the works of grace in a nation, in a church, in a family, and an individual life. If I want to impart something to my son, what am I going to impart? The 11 strengths of Israel. What is that? It's the grace of God. What is that? It's Jesus and him crucified. I must impart to him the gospel. I must impart to him the realities of where strength comes from. I must have it. He must have it. When the 11 strengths are removed from Israel, you know what happens in the next verses? I'm going to read them here. All the strength of Israel is removed. What happens next? Well, I give it away here in my subtitle. Foolishness will reign. Listen to what it says. I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. The people will be oppressed, every one by another and every one by his neighbor. The child will be insolent toward the elder and the base toward the honorable. We've lost society in one fail swoop. You lose the strength of manhood, you lose society. You lose marriages, you lose families, you lose churches. There's nothing to stand on. There's a reason why I speak to the men so often. Because when the strength is established in Israel, in the church, then suddenly there's proper leadership, there's proper strength, there's proper protection, and the rest of Israel thrives. The 11 strengths, have they departed from the church? It's a question. I'm not going to make a denouncement. I'm going to say, have they departed from the church? Let's look at them. First of all, I guess I get to give a little background on me. Capsizing intelligence, trading in the birthright for a bowl of laughter. I'm in junior high. I'm very academically sound. My, uh, my learning acumen in regards to letters, in regards to spelling, is off the charts. Most of the kids in the class, uh, when I'm in the sixth or seventh grade, I think it was the seventh grade, were in like level two or three of their, of their spelling, word spelling. I was at level 20. I was so far beyond. And what happened, because in my little subculture of public school education, it was actually uncool to be smart. And so I deliberately began to answer questions wrong so that I could fit in. I would answer questions wrong out loud that would be hilarious. I was going for the laughter. I was voted that year the class clown in the seventh grade. I was sent to the principal's office for the first time in my life. I was acting up. I remember crawling under the desk during a test and going under the teacher's desk and sitting there, uh, and everyone in the class knew it, and everyone was laughing, and the teacher didn't know it. I was showing absolute disrespect and snubbing my nose at authority in the seventh grade to fit in, to be liked. I capsized my intelligence. Here's just, just a quick story about what happened to me. 
when we are not trained rightly and we begin to esteem the opinions of men over the opinions of God, I had a raw intelligence and I capsized it. I actually became stupid. And I don't want to overstate it, but there's no other way of saying it. I actually was a fairly poor student from that point forward. And genuinely, I didn't know the answer. It wasn't like I was purposely answering questions wrong anymore. I literally didn't know. My brain slowed down. It was like atrophy of the brain. When I took my test for the SATs in English, which was my strength in the seventh grade, it was my lowest score. My math was almost double what my English was. What's funny? Look at what I do for a living. Well, what I have done for a living. I, less than I've written close to 20 books. So obviously God can redeem these areas, but you need to recognize what I've walked through. I'm very sensitized to this. I understand the pressures in our culture, and I understand what's happening to little boys. Not just sexually speaking, but intellectually. There's a breakdown, and the need to fit in and to be liked is actually capsizing the strength of what God intends to build in our little William Wallaces. I want to fight for this. I want to fight to see them preserved from this, to see them established, to see them be able to walk into the face of public peer pressure and snub their nose at that. Where are such little boys? Can they exist? If they can, we want to see them in this generation. I say let's wrestle in prayer to see it forged. The acceptance of mediocrity, subsiding into silence and allowing defeat to reign. When I was a senior in high school, I was graduating in the middle of my class. There was nothing impressive about me. I was about a 3.0 grade point average. Mediocre uh, SAT scores, uh, maybe average to above average ACT scores. There was nothing special about my intelligence. I'll just say that. I felt so insecure about my future. When it came to college, I knew I was going to go to college. But I decided I was going to be uh, maybe sports uh, therapy or physical fitness, something. I wanted to be in sports. I always wanted to be a professional athlete, and it finally dawned on me that I wasn't going to be that. And so I wanted to be around sports, so maybe sports medicine, physical therapy, just something like that, a weight coach, an exercise coach. I wanted to be in sports. And I remember this man coming up to me, uh, and he said, he'd known me for a long time. He said, Eric, what are you, what are you going to college for? I said, oh, sports medicine, uh, physical therapy. He goes, why are you aiming so low? Said, what do you mean? He goes, well, it just seems like you could do something beyond that. Uh, and I go, oh, I'm not smart enough. That's what I said. Oh, I can't do that. And he said, Eric, you could go be a doctor. So I encourage you, go do it. Now, I'm, it sounds like, you know, the power of positive thinking there, but I want you to realize this was a significant moment in my life to recognize what had happened to me. I had accepted this low tag of possibility in my life. You know how many of us have done that in our life where we literally have believed this lie that enshrouds us that there is no more that can come out of our life? Something busted loose in me at that point. And I actually went to school to be a doctor. That's what I went to, biology, chemistry, double major. Talk about a shift from my sports medicine. And I was basically, not the top, but one of the top two or three in my class in college. What happened? What changed? Well, now let me explain something else. I still wasn't smart. I was just a hard worker. You know that I actually didn't learn when I was in college? If you had asked me a test that I took two weeks ago, if you'd asked me a question today, 
I couldn't answer it correctly. I knew how to study for tests, but I didn't know how to study for life. I actually still didn't have a brain. My brain was built out of the system. I actually was an idiot with straight A's in pre-med. And I was an idiot. Okay, I'm the only one that can say that, I know. But let's just face facts in our life. How many of us is this the case with us too? In other words, we actually have zero competence in changing this world. We're waiting for someone else to do it. As a result, how in the world are we going to impart something more to our kids? We've capsized. The church doesn't have strength anymore. We've lost the 11 strengths. So, I remember I was a, I think it was a sophomore, maybe a junior, but I think it was a sophomore in college. I was doing great. Everyone was proud of me. I was the only one that could say it. I actually don't know how to think. I have no, no original thoughts. I remember hearing a pastor preach out in Indiana, just out there visiting. This pastor is preaching on covenant, and he spoke for like an hour on one passage. And I remember thinking, you know, if I spoke on that passage, I could speak for 15 seconds, and that would be the length of time it took to read the passage. Where did he get all that? He had original thought that he brought to the text. He actually thought through things. He knew all the rest of the Bible, and he could link it into that passage. How does he do that? I couldn't do that. And I stood there befuddled, saying, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to intellectually, and I have no intelligence. I don't have my own thoughts. I borrow every thought from someone else. Every good quote that comes out of my mouth is someone else's. I don't know even what I believe. What's wrong with me? So I was about 20 at this time. And I decided that I was going to be re-educated. I did. Let's see if I have the subtitle for it. I, don't, I think there's a scripture in here. For my people are foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish, which means foolish children, and they have no understanding. They are wise and do evil. They are wise to do evil, but to do good, they have no knowledge. We know how to do bad things. We know how to slip out of the house when our parents aren't looking, you know, in the night and escape. We know how to lie to our parents and, you know, cover our tracks. Do we know how to do anything good? The 11 strengths have been stripped clean. We've lost the manhood. And as a result, foolishness reigns in our culture and thusly in the church of Jesus Christ today, which was raised in this culture. The re-education of Eric Ludi, the return of the growl in Israel. When I was 20, I decided I didn't know how to think, didn't know how to critically think, didn't understand logic. I didn't know how to even think my own original thoughts. And I started an entirely new education system. You know that I started to learn grammar again? I learned penmanship again? I started over. And as a result, I actually created a framework. I I began to train in logic and in critical thinking skills. At the age of 20 to 21, what I went through is literally the foundation for everything I am now at the age of 41. It's not everything before that. The only thing I've always joked that the one thing I learned before I was 20 was typing skills. Praise God, I got something out of public school. Because that really paid off. However, I can hardly remember a thing before that. But there was an entire re-education of my life. And as a result, there was a sharpness that began to return 
to my mind. It's like God redeemed what the enemy had eroded. I don't know what's going on in your life, but here's the one thing I'm convinced of. We change direction now, if necessary. We growl in our soul and we say, no more of this. No more mediocrity. I don't care how difficult it comes to you. I don't care if you have to wrestle a hundred times harder than I had to wrestle to get back. But I want us to see what has been capsized turn right. I want to see the 11 strengths return to us as men, to return to us as the church of Jesus Christ. The return of the 11 strengths to Israel, the end goal of all godly parenting. What do we want with our children? We want them to be beacons of the glory of God. That when this world beholds their life and hears their testimony, everyone thinks of Jesus and his power to save. We need the 11 strengths of Israel returned to the heart of our children, to the life of our children. Number one, the man of faith, which in that list of the 11 strengths is called the mighty man. The believing man who takes God's word as truth and stands unflinchingly upon its promises. The man of action, or known as the man of war in Isaiah 3. The ready man, ready for disaster or privation, ready to go, ready to rescue, ready to give, ready to act, ready for war. Number three, the man of fact, also known as the judge in Isaiah 3. The arbitrator, the decision maker, the man of scripture truth. Number four, the man of words in Isaiah 3 known as the prophet, the speaker, the teacher, the communicator of truth. Number five, the man of practical wisdom, also known as the prudent, the wise, the set apart and properly guarded, the circumspect, the watchful, the master of efficiency. Number six, the man of history, the elder. Those of history, those of sagacity, those of old who possess perspective and wisdom. The man of leadership and responsibility in Isaiah 3 known as the captain of 50. Those made strong to guide as husbands, as fathers, as elders, as pastors. Number eight, the man of honor, the honorable man. The spirit governed, the noble, the heavenly mannered. Number nine, the man of the gospel, the counselor. The gospel tier, the evangelist, the man with truth ready upon his life and lips. Number ten, the man of skillful artistry. The skillful artisan is what he's known as in Isaiah 3. The master craftsman, the chief musician. And number eleven, the man of intercession. In Isaiah 3, he's known as the eloquent orator. The man of prayer, the man of intercession, the man ready to give, the man made strong to serve. I don't know what you think about that list. I want that list in my boys, but let's start with something else. I think to get that into my boys, we need to see that in the church. That's the list. Could you imagine if that was the eldership of a church? That list is the eldership of a church. That's called the body of Christ. I, I want that to return to Israel. Because one of the things I'm struggling with and knowing how to impart to my son is that I am not complete. But as a body, we may be. In other words, if we leverage the strength of this body, we may have something more than just us as individual parents to be able to offer to our children. Just a hunch. What if these 11 men were our teachers? What if these 11 men literally were the personal tutors of my sons? How do you think my sons would grow up? You know what? That'd be pretty impressive. It's the tutelage of the kingdom. This is Jesus. Jesus at work within his body. This is the body of Christ. That list is the body of Christ. It's Jesus. The supply of bread and water in Israel. 
It's the strength of manhood. Return to the church. And what does that manhood do? It knows how to impart to the next generation. Oh, here's uh, a famous proverb that has come of, uh, to note in our, our modern times, thanks to Hillary Clinton. It takes a whole village to raise a child. It's an African proverb, I think, specifically from Nigeria. And I'm not necessarily against the quote. However, I'm not necessarily pro the book, okay, just so you know. In other words, I'm not against a child being in a village and being raised and influenced by all the elders around them. However, that's not necessarily what it's all about. It's basically saying all society and the multiculturalism and all the different elements that we can bring, all the different religious viewpoints are all necessary for a child to be well-rounded. No! They need truth! And truth is in the Word of God! And truth is found in Jesus Christ! And we are exclusive in our relationship, just like my marriage is exclusive. So is my relationship with God and with truth. It's exclusive to the revelation of God Almighty in the 66 books of the canon known as the Bible. That is what must be imparted. And so I have my own little proverb. I don't know if you'd call it a proverb, but... Oh, yeah, it is. Windsorian proverb. It takes the strength of an entire body to build, change the world children. In other words, I'm not promoting the African proverb necessarily. I'm promoting the body proverb. See, God's the one that came up with this. God's the one that sticks us in bodies. He's the one that sticks us in families. Isn't that an amazing thought? He doesn't just call us to be individuals. And as a result, one of the things I'm noticing in my parenting is that I lack at certain dimensions. There's certain people that can come into my child's life and say something And I'm thinking, well, I know that, but why were they able to come in and say it so much more effectively? You know what? I specialize in dealing with collegiates. I really do. It's like my specialty. You give me a little four-year-old, and I'm not as sharp. I love four-year-olds, don't get me wrong. But I'm not as effective. I know when I'm being effective, okay? It's like when you're in your field of excellence, you know when you're there. I know when I'm doing something well, and I also know when I'm not. And in my parenting, it taxes me in a way where I know I'm anointed to do it, and so I'm going to keep doing it. But there is a need that I sense for greater strength. What if these 11 strengths return to the church? Look at this statement in Ephesians 3. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all the saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So one of the things we're recognizing is Paul has been given grace to build and construct the church and to preach the words of Christ. He's given grace for this task. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know that God's great agenda is to reveal his manifold wisdom, his many-layered wisdom, to the world in and through the church. So the principalities and the powers of that unseen realm would literally have the revelation in and through us. The 11 strengths would be revealed in and through us. Raising William Wallace. Seven things we must once again impart to our boys. 
Number one, honorable behavior. Everything from basic respect to personal hygiene, from cleanliness to honorable clothing, from being the first to suffer to being the last to eat. What if we taught noble manhood instead of just good manners? Sexual excellence. Everything that is appropriate in dealing with girls, guarding the mind, handling temptation, monitoring the inner thought life. What if we taught the idea of protecting, preserving, and promoting purity rather than just teaching physical abstinence? Number three, preparation for disaster. Extreme living, readiness for action, readiness to die, readiness to rescue, readiness to give, readiness to thrive in difficult conditions. What if we taught rescue skills instead of just survival skills? Number four, spiritual leadership. Initiative in spiritual matters, being the man in prayer and devotion, first sufferer in all things. What if we taught true devotion unto Christ instead of just leading them in a salvation prayer? Number five, physical training, excellence in physical health, muscular strength, and cardiovascular endurance. What if we taught physical health as an instrument to undergird and sustain calling, readiness, and rescue, and not just for looking good in the mirror? Number six, special skill training. The ability to speak, write, listen, build, fix, problem solve, critically think, research, study, invent, etc. What if we train boys to be excellent in knowledge and skill in order that they would prove more effective in changing this world for Jesus Christ and not just so that they would have a money-making trade? Number seven, husbandhood, fatherhood, and social leadership. Excellence in the home and in the public sector. What if we train boys to be extraordinary in their future manly roles of responsibility rather than just have them figure it out for themselves when the day comes? The Sacred 20. This is a quote that I have known about for probably about 22 years. It takes 20 years to prepare a sermon because it takes 20 years to make a man. I quoted that to myself so many times because at first I was saying, God, why does it take so long? And now, you know what I think? I'm glad it takes a long time because I need as much time as I can get with my boys. I need more time. Childhood skips over way too fast. You turn and blink as a parent and it seems that it's gone. Now, you could say, Eric, little do you know, your oldest is seven and a half. Yeah, but still, I know seven and a half years of it. That little guy was just born. What's going on here? Seven and a half? Look how, he's going to be taller than me at eight. <laughs> What's happening? It takes 20 years to prepare a sermon because it takes 20 years to make a man. Since 20 years go by so fast, I want us to think impossible. I want us to think body. And I want us to think grace. These 20 years are going by quickly. And these are the formative years of those little boys' lives. And a sermon is being prepared. We do not need any more schlocky, postmodern, mushy minded sermons in this generation. We need sermons that truly. Bring the thunder of truth to this earth. Can it be that our kids preach louder than we did? Could it be that they go farther than us? Think impossible. Because that's the realm that God works in. Don't think what you can do. Think what God can do in and through you in your parenting. And then I need us to think outside of just us. I need us to think body-wise. I really, 
don't know what my commission is to the men here and the men around the world that are going to watch this. But I want to form some form of a coalition of men to say, for our boys, for our boys, are we willing to do what is necessary? And those of you that have older boys, to join with those that have younger ones to say, I'm into. We need men to return to the stage of time and impart the strength of the gospel unto these boys. Now, how could this translate to women? It's a parallel. It's the exact same thing. What could we say? Could you imagine the same coalition of women doing the same for the little girls? You see, we must have impartation, but most of us are struggling to even have something to impart. I know I have something to impart. I may not have the full 11 strengths of Israel fully in my grip or in my soul, but you know what? As the body, I believe God can bring together the strength of Israel again, and we can bring something to bear upon these little ones, and we can see something change in this world. Think impossible. Think body. And you must always remember, it's not by your own willpower, grit, and determination. It's by his grace. Lord Jesus, we ask for grace. We need it because the hour of need is right now. And Lord, there's many of us in here that are at wit's end and we're in the dark night of our soul when it comes to truly knowing how to raise our children right. But Lord Jesus, we refuse to accept mediocrity. Push us forward and give us a growl. Please, Lord Jesus, do this work in us. This is for you, unto you, for your glory, honor, and praise. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please, feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.